On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Did it seem strange to you that Luke tells us that Jesus, on this occasion, is going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to have a Sabbath meal? It seemed a little strange to me, because as you read through the Gospels, what you find is Jesus showing up in a whole host of different circumstances, but if it's going to be a hostile encounter you can almost be assured that the opposition is going to be someone affiliated with the Pharisees. But on this occasion, Jesus is going home with the leader of the Pharisees to have a meal. The text doesn't tell us, but maybe they're acquainted. Maybe they are even friends. At least it suggests that there is a shared or mutual respect between Jesus and and this leader of the Pharisees. I tried to figure out why Jesus would be going home with a Pharisee if, in fact, the Pharisees are the main opposition with which Jesus is dealing throughout his ministry. It came to me as I read over the passage several times this week that perhaps our current situation in the United Methodist Church could help us understand this. You see, we're in a place of difficulty. We've been a large enough denomination, millions of us now, for a long time. But we have some divisiveness that's going on within the congregation. We're having trouble agreeing on any number of issues. We have known for a long time that you could go to different Methodist churches, and what's being emphasized there in terms of our theology might not all sound alike. We've also known for a long time that we do not all agree on every single social issue of the day and that we have a good deal of discord and divisiveness around some of these as well. And yet, I work on conference state-level committees where there are other pastors that if we didn't have a common task to work on, if we were going to talk about theology, they would disagree with me in terms of what I think is most important, what I hear coming through the gospel. They would be my rivals, maybe even my adversaries on some of those, and they might feel the same about me. And yet we come together, and we plan, and we eat, and we pray, and we work together. We try to do all that we can 
to help Methodism be a vital force for Christ and His love in the world. So I thought about Jesus and this Pharisee. And I thought maybe that's a similar kind of situation. Rivals and critics of one another, and yet bound together by a common commitment to God and their faith. On this occasion, Jesus is invited and goes to have this meal. He sees people taking their seats. He doesn't like what he sees, but rather than leaving, he stays to be a part of the meal. But then he decides to criticize what has going, gone on there. This is how Luke tells it in verse 7, 8, and 9. When Jesus noticed how the guest chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, Give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. Jesus sees people jockeying for position, trying to find a place of higher status. He sees them on this Sabbath day, not thinking about God and how to honor God, but thinking about themselves and how to build up their own honor to enhance or at least protect their own honor. He doesn't like what he sees, and he tells them a parable. This week, while I was thinking about this, I encountered this new book. Maybe you have heard about it. It's published by Oxford Press, written by a professor from the University of Oklahoma, Professor Ryan P. Brown. The title of the book is Honor Bound. Honor Bound. He says he's been studying the history of cultures, and he's able to divide cultures into two distinct groups. He says one is a dignity culture, in which the culture says everybody has worth because we're all human beings. So everyone deserves equal rights and equal protection under the law. He notes that this is a fairly recent development in the history of humankind. He says the other culture is much older. He calls it the honor culture. He says he found that there were two conditions in all of these cultures. One is that the people live in vulnerable economic conditions. So in an honor culture, people are in a precarious situation economically. He says think about herding cultures where someone has some sheep or some cattle. They're out on the range, but economically they could lose some of those. Or someone could come by and steal part of the herd while they're not looking. Or a stronger force might come by and actually kill them and take their livelihood and leave their family with nothing. So they're in a precarious situation throughout their lives. But then he says there is a second condition, and the second condition is that there is the absence of the rule of law. 
He says, thinking about this, you can see how this happens. If you have a large herd of animals that you're trying to take care of, and you may even be nomadic in terms of looking for grazing property as well as water, that is very hard to have an established, recognized police force or any kind of force for government or any kind of rule. So he says what grows up in those cultures that people establish their identity based on their honor or their reputation, that they can take care of themselves, and you better not cross their boundaries. And so they're always working to protect their boundaries. And so they put on a persona or develop an identity that is strong and tough based on their reputation. He says that was important in cultures long ago, but we have roots of that still manifesting in our culture today in the United States. He says, do you know people that always seem to have their guard up, where they're always working to protect their boundaries, and they're watching for insults of any kind and reacting to those, but they seem aggressive. He says he saw a lot of that in his research of people who seem to be overly aggressive and often prone to move to violence in a hurry. He says in his studies, particularly of the United States, what he found was that the honor culture is still deeply rooted in some of our states. He gives a rank ordering of all 50 states. He says the top nine are all in the deep south. Texas is number 10. He says Oklahoma is number 11. He says it's an easy way to understand this, and then he gives lots of detail about immigration patterns and such. We don't have time to go into all of that today, but he gives one example that I think describes it vividly that will help all of us understand what happens when we react with aggressiveness and violence. He says you can see it in the statistics of homicides and suicides in these states. But he says imagine a college class. You have students from across the United States and then the person doing the experiment pays one person to go in as a student, but they're directed to annoy all the other students for the whole hour. So they're doing things on purpose to try to get under your skin. And he says the same thing happens every time. that students who are from the north, where their honor culture is not as strong, begin to react right away with subtle cues about trying to get the person to stop. But, of course, the person's being paid, so they continue to do things which annoy everyone. And he says before long, the northern students, even though they seem kind of rude at first, give up. But he says the southern students who have been polite up to that point and have not done very much pick up right after the northern students begin to ignore this annoying one. And he said they begin to give some not-so-subtle gestures about cut it out. And if the person doesn't stop, which they don't because it's an experiment, then they begin to get even more aggressive in making sure this person stops that behavior and brings them back into line. He said, in fact, in many of the experiments, the students from southern states began to get aggressive and even initiate physical contact, getting up from their seats and going over to the student to stop them physically from doing the annoying behaviors, tapping their pencil or whatever they were doing. He said they had to stop the experiment because in so many cases it almost came to blows before they could get in and explain to everybody what was going on. 
He says that's honor-bound behavior rooted in a culture where you had to protect your honor and your reputation. Jesus is in a situation in which honor is at stake. But rather than saying, be sure that you protect yourself, or be sure you get there early to get the best seat at the table, he offers a very different idea. In fact, he says, you do not have to defend your honor at all. In fact, that is not necessary because someone else is going to do that for you. In verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. The host will defend your honor. That's what Jesus says. The host will defend your honor. You need not do that. But we should notice that Jesus says in the parable, the setting is a wedding banquet. And often a banquet or wedding banquet in Scripture is used as a symbol for the kingdom of God. So if it's a symbol for the kingdom, who's going to be the host? It is going to be Christ himself. Christ will be the host. I think Jesus is saying he will take care of this. He will defend your honor if necessary. And if we understand it that way, then it moves from just some instructions about how to act or behave at somebody's dinner party and moves into a lesson about how we're to live as followers of his, about what life is going to look like in the kingdom of God and how we should begin to embody that in our own lives right now. Verse 11, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're here on a Labor Day weekend. I thought, who should we honor? What worker should we lift up on this Labor Day weekend? And I thought of these people that work in our midst who do so many of the jobs that we take for granted. They prepared your bulletin. They emptied the trash. They mopped the floors. Many of them are here, and you never see them. Some of them you may have passed and not even known they worked at the church. And yet they're so very faithful at coming and doing their jobs and laboring in our midst, even if it's behind the scenes, in such a way that the building is always ready, the meals are always prepared, the mailings go out to give you the information you need. They're working in our midst all of the time. And I wanted you to have a chance to know them better and to say thank you to them, but also realize they are great examples of what Jesus is talking about in terms of being humble servants. Jesus reveres the humble servants and says in the kingdom they will be exalted. You can see this so vividly displayed in the way John recounts what Jesus does 
when he's having this last supper with his disciples in the 13th chapter of John. Remember, John says that Jesus takes off his robe and his outer garments and grabs a towel and gets down on his knees and begins to wash the feet of the disciples and washes all of their feet and then sits at table and offers them the bread, his body, and the cup, his blood. He is the host, and yet he is the servant. It's a paradox of the gospel that he both washes feet and also offers us the gifts of life in the bread and the cup. When you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. And thanks be to God.